Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello, everyone, and it's so good to be with you again. Um, this past Sunday, uh, the file got corrupted again for the sermon, um, which I've mentioned before, you know, uh, sometimes I, I, I rather like the second pass at a sermon, um, you know, getting to see what worked and what didn't in the moment, um, and just to be able to kind of give you perhaps a different uh, approach to the content and, and what we're doing. And so this past Sunday, we finished up this series that we've been in, Eureka. So the vision for this whole year is, you know, from the throne flows a river of renewal. And we've been really um, sitting in that word renewal, considering what are some of the things that bear to be renewed um, as we're reorienting back to King Jesus, um, perhaps letting go of some old ways of thinking and some old ways of being in the world, um, but seeking what is uh, truly faithful and and what really leads us closer to God. And so in this series, um, we've been trying to renew our approach to the Old Testament. Uh, and our whole premise has kind of been that the Old Testament as the partial revelation of God is like a collection of signposts pointing through the mists to Jesus as the full revelation of God. And I've mentioned many times before um, that I think that Biblicism is actually the greatest threat to Christianity today, where we have uh, lowered our sights from uh, following Jesus as our king and and that everything in our faith is kind of pointing towards him, to kind of treating the Bible as some sort of rule book or, or a handbook for life um, that's just supposed to tell us what to do, that it gives us instructions. Um, and while some of scripture does work that way, I think it's a very uh, short-sighted vision. And I think that's why a lot of us become rather disillusioned with scripture, because it doesn't seem to always do that. And I think that's especially our problem with the Old Testament, it's a lot of the, the stories, um, the poems, the writings, the prophecies uh, fall short in just telling us what to do. They don't seem particularly useful if that's our expectation. But if we can renew our vision for all of Scripture, but particularly the Old Testament in this series, that it's, it's there to point us toward Jesus, we begin to uh, allow the Scriptures to open up to us in a way that um, Jesus begins to redeem and fulfill every word of the Old Testament. But that means uh, that it takes work on our end to enter into this, these stories, these passages, um, and, and wrestle with them until we find Christ in them. Um, I've never been a big fan of that idea of the, the plain reading of Scripture, because I think that often appeals to that lowest common denominator. And even in the early church, in the first several centuries, some of the great writers um, of the way um, advocated that we sit with scripture time and again, we allow it to wash over us, but we're insistent that Jesus is there somewhere, even if it doesn't seem apparent on our first or plain reading. And so today uh, is uh, one of my favorite of these Christophanies that we've been talking about, which are looking at um, stories, events, people, passages of scripture that uh, may actually be evidence of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament as one way um, of finding him 
um, in, the, in the scriptures. Uh, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 8. And so what I did on Sunday, and I actually encourage you to do this sometime during the week if you weren't able to join us um, in worship, is to read the whole chapter of Proverbs 8 um, in, in one sitting and just read it looking for Jesus. Like, how does this sound like him? Um, but today what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of break down, because it's a pretty decent stretch of scripture, I'm going to break it down into kind of four parts and share four revelations that I have found of how this scripture really points uh, to Christ. Um, so Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature that we find in the Old Testament and includes Psalms uh, and Job. Um, Lamentations can kind of be in that category. And it's usually attributed to King Solomon, um, David's son who ascends to the throne. And a lot of you will know Proverbs for um, these kind of little one-liners, these almost like tweetable quotes from him um, that really do seem to uh, just be giving good advice. Uh, and, I, and I really love it. It's, it's fun. Like in Proverbs, like there's one proverb says, you know, don't, uh, don't respond to or suffer a fool. And there's another one that says, do respond to or suffer a fool. And, and I like that because it even begins to break down this idea of it's, it's just there to give us advice. But when we step back <clears throat> and really understand the overarching purpose of Proverbs and what Solomon's really trying to do here, then when we do come to some of those kind of little one-liners, it helps us to understand what's really, really happening there. So um, Solomon is writing uh, the book of Proverbs for his son. And he's laying before his son these two options between wisdom and folly. Those kind of become the two major themes. But what Solomon does early on is he personifies wisdom and folly as, uh, as two women um, that are kind of beckoning our attention and, you know, there aren't a lot of feminine images for God in Scripture. Of course, you know, the, the Bible being written out of patriarchal societies, so the dominant visions of God tend to be masculine, but there are a few feminine images of God. And, and this is one of them where we look at wisdom personified as a woman. In, um, in Greek, the, the, the word for wisdom is Sophia, which is a, you know, a, a, a woman's name. And uh, one of the really beautiful things here is as we read um, Proverbs 8, the personification of wisdom as a woman, we begin to see the personification of Jesus in that as well. Um, so I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to read um, four kind of portions of Proverbs 8 and just kind of open up some of the reflections I have there. So uh, pray with me, please. So Father, um, wherever we are in this moment, uh, we, we want to pause and recognize that you are also here with us, um, that you're never very far away, um, but it does uh, invite us to slow down, uh, to open up uh, our reality, to move beyond the surface of whatever we're experiencing in life right now, all of our triumphs and tragedies, the preoccupations that we have, the, the tasks at hand, um, that we want to slow down and we just want to bless the fact that you are here and that you're with us. Um, and that you're for us. You're never very far away. And so, Lord, I pray wherever we are, whatever we're doing as we're listening uh, to this uh, sermon, um, that you would begin to speak to each one of us what we really need to hear today to reorient back uh, to that most beautiful and profound truths of your witness. Um, and especially, Lord, I pray even as I'm reading uh, the words of your servant Solomon, 
uh, that we would see Christ uh, so very present in this image. So speak, Lord, for we're listening. So Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 11. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies. And nothing you desire can compare with her. In Solomon's writing, Folly is a seductive woman, um, always hiding in the shadows, beckoning Solomon's son, and by extension, all of us, to deviate from the course, uh, to, to go into these dark and secretive places, um, to stay out of the light. But in contrast, Solomon's personification of wisdom, she's a woman who is standing out in the open, calling to us, inviting us to come to her. She doesn't hide. She isn't uh, duplicitous or seductive, but she's rather making herself known. And I hope in that you're already seeing something of what we see in Jesus, that Jesus, as the wisdom of God, demands our attention, even as he seeks us. I've been thinking a lot recently about this idea of attention. I think it's a great approach to understanding what we mean when we talk about worship, um, because our attention begins to uh, shape our will and our desires. Whatever we give our attention to um, begins to dictate the things that we value in life. And, and that's what we've said a lot of times about worship, that um, we become like what we worship. And one of the things I think is most profound about this modern era uh, the supposedly post-religious world that we live in is that we think we've moved beyond uh, the idea of worship and, and the idea of these other, you know, the, the pagan gods uh, that, that were present in many of our, um, you know, kind of in our pagan heritages, wherever our people might be from. And we've moved beyond that. We're in a rational era. There is no spiritual realm. There are no other gods. But when we kind of reorient the understanding of um, what draws our attention to be what demands our worship. And, and part of that even being sacrifice. What do, we, what do we sacrifice to? We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our resources. We sacrifice our affections. And sometimes we even sacrifice other people. We begin to recognize that perhaps some of those old gods are alive and well. Um, because there are always things that are demanding our attention. There are whole industries that are built on keeping our attention so that we continue to invest in those things 
and, and give those things our resources, our money, our time, whatever it might be. But what we recognize in this modern era as well is that those things begin to shape us because they tell us what it is that we want. And on a deeper level, they tell us who we are. I think the internet operates like this. It's kind of this collective consciousness. Um, it almost operates the same as a god. That um, our phones and our laptops uh, become these portals of worship where it demands our attention to give us these little kind of hits of, of dopamine um, throughout the day uh, that make us feel something. But before long, it begins to actually really shape our will. And it's, you know, your will is kind of the, the engine of desire and motivation and kind of what you, how you see yourself, what you want out of life. And so, you know, a lot of times I think we, um, we divert our attentions away from Jesus because it maybe it feels like hard work to, uh, to remain faithful. Um, and a lot of times we do tend to, to slip into lesser gods that demand our attention because it feels easier. Um, but just because something's easier doesn't mean that it's better. And I think what we see here that when we, when we personify wisdom, not just as good advice on how to live better, because I think there's plenty of that in the world, but that wisdom is found in a person and that person is the human God. Um, we see that Jesus is demanding our attention. He's standing out um, in the open saying, listen, come to me, learn from me. But the other part of it that I find is so beautiful, uh, this vision of Jesus in Proverbs 8 as the wisdom of God, is that this is also a God who comes close to us, that wisdom seeks us out, that we don't have to find this secret path to, to a secretive knowledge it's not something that is hidden away from us, but that this God is closer to us than our own breath. And I think that that is so key that God um, offers us his attention. Um, God draws near to us and seeks us out even as we seek him. And we need that vision of God as the highest ideal to which we offer our attention. And that begins to shape how we see ourselves and our place in the world. And the more that we develop those muscles of offering our attention to God um, through spiritual practice, it begins to shape and form us, and it becomes more of a necessity over time. I think that leads to uh, the second passage here, which is verses 12 to 21. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. With me are riches and honor Enduring wealth and prosperity, my fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the ways of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. 
So here we see where attention begins to shape our will and our understanding of the world. And I think what we see here is that Jesus, as the wisdom of God, becomes our source for understanding uh, good and evil, these categories. You know, the, the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, and it quite literally means separating water. And there's this constant theme in Scripture, especially the early passages, we've talked about this a little bit, where we see God separating out the waters in order to bring forth life. And in the ancient world, kind of not just in Judaism, but in most of the ancient religions, water was seen as uh, as the symbol of uh, chaos, the chaotic spiritual realm, the place of the powers and the principalities and the forces of evil, and that God quite literally separates out and holds back the waters in order to establish this flourishing. And so, you know, even here, when we're talking about wisdom, perhaps we see the parallels uh, to the, the early Genesis stories that we examined. In Genesis 1, in God's creation of the world and bringing order and structure to, um, to the world, but also this veiled reference to the Garden of Eden. And if you recall from Jonathan's wonderful sermon on Adam and Eve, they were presented with this choice. Will you eat from the, choice, from the tree of life or from the knowledge of good and evil? And a lot of times we would think, well, what's wrong with just knowing good and evil? But the key is that it's not about will we choose the knowledge of good and evil or not. It's do we find our core source uh, in intimacy with God, that as the source of life, and as we pursue that intimacy with God, good and evil become these categories, um, almost that are like secondhand learned uh, processes. Um, and so, as we pursue Jesus, it shapes our understanding of what is good and what is evil. I think this is so key in, in our modern era where. Part of the postmodern experiment has been to try to erase those categories of good and evil, say, well, there is no real good, there is no real evil, it's all relative. Um, but then we see the atrocities happening around us um, when human beings take upon ourselves um, the role of discern deciding what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And I love that in this, this little portion of passage, um, that wisdom is always accompanied by discernment um, and knowledge. Um, but those are things that come through participation in life with God. And that's what really begins to, to shape us as we're participating in this life, as we're walking the path and we're meeting the chaos of the world, the chaotic waters um, that are you know, imbued with the powers and the principalities and these forces of evil that come against God's good creation. We begin to understand how God has really shaped things. And I, you know, one of the things that I found especially helpful recently is to think of sin uh, as the misuse of creation. Um, you know, in the West, a lot of times when we think of sin, we think in very legal terms, like there are these rules that have been established, these cosmic rules, and you either follow the rules or you break the rules. And so sin is just being guilty of breaking the rules. But there's a much more naturalistic view of seeing it, that God has created this world um, with intention and order and goodness in mind. And we sin either personally or uh, corporately when we misuse that creation, when we take upon ourselves the responsibility of deciding what is good and evil, right and wrong. And so I sin on a personal level when I misuse creation. Maybe it's my own body or it's 
other bodies, other people, but we also corporately sin when we misuse creation, when we take, uh, kind of take advantage and rape the natural world for its resources. You know, uh, recently I was down in Sarasota and I was um, at this really gorgeous botanical garden down there and there was a little plaque that was kind of looking out over the bay in Sarasota and it said the collective value of this bay um, to locals is $14.8 million. And I was just struck by that. Like, how tragic is it that we look at the beauty of the natural world and we turn it into a dollar sign? All we see is the potential for something, like for our profit, rather than seeing creation as this good gift from God that we're called to steward. And I think that that's such a helpful category when we understand sin, when we choose evil based on how it serves us rather than encouraging creation to flourish. And so we see in this passage that, that wisdom claims that by her, rulers um, rule. And I just can't help but to think when, when I read this, um, how many of our rulers actually uh, live by that kind of wisdom. You know, every week we pray uh, from the Book of Common Prayer, the, the, the prayers of the people. And there's one particular prayer where we do intercede for um, the rulers of the nations, especially in our own country. And I'm always struck because it, it talks about leading in the ways of justice and peace. I just wonder sometimes, what do our leaders mean when they say justice? And what do our leaders mean when they say peace? Because of the sneaking suspicion sometimes that they don't mean those things in the way that God does. But when we kind of submit ourselves to the ways of God, he begins to show us what actual justice really means and what we really are pursuing when we pursue peace. But the biggest uh, revelation to me in this passage especially is that love is the culmination of wisdom. It's not about um, having a lot of facts and knowledge and being um, and, and, and not even being calculating uh, because we have enough information to know how to make decisions. And that's where we fall short often when we think of wisdom as just applied knowledge. Um, but the culmination of wisdom is love. And I've recognized in life, and I'm sure you have as well, that sometimes the smartest people in the world can be the cruelest people. And others that maybe we don't consider particularly intelligent are the most loving, generous open people. And I think that should challenge all of us in our pursuit of wisdom, our pursuit of knowledge to say, what is the end game? Is it truly that we become more loving people? We become more godlike because of our pursuit of wisdom? Or does it still become a means to ends for our own personal gain? The next portion is verses 22 to 31. And I really, really love this portion of the scripture, because I think it hits home this idea of um, this Sophia wisdom being the personification of Jesus. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth, when there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, 
when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Jesus is at the heart of all things and closest to God. You know, we began this series by looking at Jesus as the word of God, the logos of God. And in and, and Genesis 1, I was kind of showing how God through the logos, the word, creates and sustains all things. And this was one of the radical claims of the early church, that Jesus was not <clears throat> simply some moral teacher or a good example to us, but that he was the word of God who suspends and animates the entire cosmos. And that when we make this parallel between the Logos or the Word of God and the Sophia wisdom of God, we see that they actually speak to the same thing, that God creates the world through wisdom, and that wisdom being the Christ. And I think the order in creation itself testifies to this wisdom, this intelligence, that from the mind of God, God speaks and God creates through wisdom to create um, a universe that flourishes, that it has, it has order, it has intention, it has this incredible specificity for bringing forth life. And perhaps you've heard of this idea of the fine-tuned universe, that as scientists are looking at, well, what are the, the qualities that are conducive for life to appear um, in the universe? We keep finding more and more of these little categories that um, really show how special our planet is. Um, so just as, a, you know, even as we look at um, some of the numbers and the research here, we kind of estimate right now that we think that the universe, uh, going back to the Big Bang, is about 13.8 billion years old. So the Big Bang, the rapid expansion over time, um, you know, the galaxies become, start to form and then in that stars begin to form and they're kind of crashing into each other and solidifying and then planets begin to form in that and over the course of billions of years we see the universe starting to take shape and one planet in particular earth um, takes that form where it becomes habitable about 4.2 billion years ago so it becomes conducive for this thing called life and it was about 745 million years after that <clears throat> that life actually appears as these like single-celled organisms um, that begin to propagate uh, like all over the planet. But one of the things that researchers especially delineate is there's there's the um, you know the evolution of life, but then there's the appearance of intelligent life, and that's a whole other thing. So it might be relatively easy for us to find life in the universe, but to find intelligence is another matter altogether. And intelligent life on Earth has only appeared in the last half a billion years. So when you look at the grand time scale of uh, the universe itself, you know, intelligent life being humanity, we are just a blip right at the very end 
um, of that timeline. And so as, as scientists are looking at all of these qualities ne necessary for life to flourish, but then for intelligent life to come forward, we're recognizing that um, it is an extraordinarily rare thing for a planet like ours to exist. And there's actually been um, uh, tests done where we've kind of ran the clock back on the universe and started the experiment over again and how often a planet like Earth does not uh, come up through that math mathematical equation. And there's a researcher in Sweden who has taken a tally of what they think is the, the total number of planets in the universe right now and how many of them may actually be conducive for the formation of intelligent life. And he has discovered the, that Earth is a one in 700 quintillion planet. Quintillion, that's a one with 20 zeros after it. And so planets are common. Simple life forms may even be relatively common, <clears throat> but the, all of the, the various uh, qualities and parameters that we need for intelligent life to come forward, like a planet like ours, is incredibly rare. One in 700 quintillion chance. And we know that like, for our planet, if we were tilted you know, two degrees one way or the other, Earth would either burn up or it would freeze and like all these different categories. So when we look at that intelligent life on Earth, <clears throat> we think that there's probably been 109 million people who have ever lived. So there's you know, probably around 8 to 10 million people on the planet right now. But since the beginning of humanity, there's been about 109 million people. And the radical thing to me about that is that you are the only you that has ever existed. So over 13.8 billion years, in the past 4.2 billion years as life has formed on Earth, that Earth is a 1 in 700 quintillion a chance planet, that there's been 109 million people who ever lived, you are the only you that has or will ever exist. And isn't that amazing? That we can feel so overwhelmed and perhaps insignificant, yet also so precious. That this God revealed in Jesus, that Jesus is the wisdom of God, orders the entire universe, yet still calls to you and I on the daily. And that brings us to the fourth and final portion of this scripture, verses 32 to 36. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Jesus, as the wisdom of God, invites us to intimacy with him, to know who we truly are so that we can know what to do, so we can know how to be in the world that he's created. And so one good practice is to look at Old Testament scriptures like this and to say, where is Jesus in this scripture? But it's also a really fruitful exercise to go the other direction. What are the words 
of Jesus that we have in the New Testament that sound like wisdom. And I think about Jesus saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I think about him saying, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, I think about those challenges that Jesus is constantly offering to his first listeners and by extension to us to come to him, to pay attention to him, that even as he seeks us, he's asking us to seek him. And the challenge here is to recognize that the, the brokenness of the world around us is a result of our diverted attentions, of us taking upon ourselves uh, the right to determine what is good and what is evil. And I think that's the, the what should make us kind of sit up in our seats, that last little uh, line, but those who fail to find me harm themselves, all who hate me love death. And it's not that God is punishing us. It's not that God is striking us down, this kind of really sad vision of wrath that many of us have grown up with. It's that God loves us so much that he will let us do what we want, even though it grieves him and breaks his heart. And we see there's even another portion in, in the New Testament where Jesus talks about this, that you know, he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. The world already stood condemned, which means we already took matters into our own hands and we messed it up. Like we, we broke ourselves, we broke the earth. So the work of the, Jesus as the wisdom of God is to call us back to intimacy with him, to realign our attention so that we can recognize who we truly are, that our real identity is not in how successful we are, how productive we are, or how performative we are, or whatever it is that we, we learn from these lesser gods that demand our attention and our energy, but that our true identity is a gift that we are to receive, that we are God's beloved, that before we did or said anything, he was already well-pleased in us. And the more that we're able to, to, to listen to Jesus, to, to incline our ear, to hear his voice, to rest um, our heads uh, upon his breast, the more we're able to, to live into that truth that we are the beloved of God. And that begins to shape how we are in the world, how we operate. And it requires our constant attention. We can't take that for granted and just drift back to these lesser gods. But the beauty of wisdom is that it forms us, it shapes us as the beloved of God to think and feel and act like Jesus. That wisdom is not just about imposing a set of moral rules on us and just telling us what to do, even though a lot of us would love that. I've recognized even at 38 years old, I would just love some days for someone just to tell me what to do. I would love the Bible to just be this handbook for life that just gives me instruction. But the challenge of Jesus, I think, is far more beautiful. Come to me, learn from me, um, be close to me. And as you're transformed by those encounters, you will begin to, to think differently, to feel differently, and to act differently in the world. That our faith is not about behavior modification, but it's about developing virtue. So what does our attention tell us about what we desire? We see Paul speaking about this at the beginning of his letter um, to the church in Corinth, where he picks up this motif of Christ as the wisdom of God. So again, this is a kind of longer passage, but I really like 
you know, listening to bigger passages of scripture because I think it helps us to get more into the mindset of the writers and to allow it to wash over us and immerse us um, for this kind of transformative knowledge. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 32. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the intelligent or destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. And Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I think what Paul is really hitting home here is that when we lower our sights, when we lower our attention from knowing God and his wisdom, we begin to seek our own power. We look for uh, knowledge or actions that just defend and justify us as the center of our own narratives. And so in Paul's day, he's making this contrast here. When he says the Jews demand signs and wonders, what he's talking about was how many uh, of his fellow Jews in the first century were looking for the miraculous display of God um, but in a way that it justified them as being God's chosen people at the exclusion of all others. Um, you know, and as, as charismatics, like we would say, well, don't we want to see signs and wonders and the miraculous? And it's yes, absolutely. But to what end? Why do we pursue those things? Is it because we've gotten bored with the message of Christ crucified and we want something that's just more awe-inspiring? Or do we maybe more nefariously want those things to kind of maintain our uh, unique access to the power of God, that we're the ones that have this special privilege and there's kind of a, a pompousness to that pursuit of signs and wonders. Um, and he also says the, the Greeks seek knowledge. And this is kind of, um, you know, post Plato Greek philosophy that believed that there was this secret knowledge that only certain people were capable of finding. And if you have that knowledge, then knowledge is power because now you get you can control the world, you can control society, you can control nature itself. 
And it's fascinating to me that Paul contrasts these two pursuits in life with Christ crucified. Now, Paul believes in the resurrection. In chapter 15, he will go on to talk about the resurrection of Christ. But the beauty is here when he says we preach Christ crucified, which is stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. What he's saying is that Jesus, as the wisdom of God, turns the world upside down in order to heal it. That that image of Christ crucified, that being the wisdom of God, is this upside down power of love, like real agape, sacrificial, self-giving love that breaks open the world in order to heal it. And it's that, that radical invitation to agape love that was so revolutionary in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that shaped his early followers and continues to shape us today, that we are the people who are self-giving, self-emptying for the sake of the world, for the sake of others. And that is what true wisdom looks like. And so the invitation for you and for me today is, will you come to him, Jesus, as the wisdom of God? Will you sit at his feet And will you learn from him? Will you let him remind you of who you truly are so that you can be transformed? And from that place, you will know what to do. I want to finish by converting uh, bits of Proverbs 8 into a prayer. I think this is, again, such a wonderful discipline for us is to read scripture, but then to convert scripture into prayer. So I'm going to close us um, in that way. Lord Jesus, we listen, for you have trustworthy things to say. You open our lips to speak what is right. Your mouth speaks what is true, for your lips detest wickedness. All the words of your mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They, have, they are upright to those who have found knowledge. May we choose your instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for you are more precious than rubies, and nothing we desire can compare with you. The Lord brought you forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. You were formed long ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, you were given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills you were given birth, before God made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. You were there when God set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. You were constantly at his side. You were filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. May we as children listen to you. Blessed are those who keep your ways. May we listen to your instruction and be wise. Let us not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to you, watching daily at your doors, waiting at your doorway, for those who find you find life, and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find you harm themselves. All who hate you love death. Amen.
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.